Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 332. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 332 you're listening to. My guest today is Frank Filippetti, who is a producer, engineer, and mixer, seven-time Grammy winner at that. Frank has worked with Foreigner, Kiss, James Taylor, Carly Simon, The Bangles, Barbara Streisand, Ray Charles, Billy Joel, Mariah Carey, Madonna, Elton John, Rod Stewart, and Paul McCartney. Just to name a few. Frank talks to us from his home in Connecticut about his journey, which I think you're going to enjoy very much. I enjoyed our conversation. So, Frank Filippetti, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about taking care of your ears. Whether you're 20, 50, 75, it doesn't matter. If you work in any of the many audio disciplines, you depend on your ears. Look, hearing loss is inevitable. Age, of course, naturally plays a part in hearing loss over time. I I think you all know that. However, our exposure to loud environments and how we deal with them is our choice. So, if you allow yourself to be exposed to leaf blowers, shooting ranges, loud concerts, construction noise, and the many areas of life that produce excessively loud sounds without hearing protection, well, you cannot act surprised then when the ringing in your ears gets worse, you have difficulty understanding people talk, or you can't hear specific frequencies very well. Don't be the person who thinks you're tough by listening loud. It's on you, it's your responsibility. Young listeners, I know you might think you are invincible, Well, I'm here to tell you, you are not. Older listeners, you may think, oh, I'll be fine. I've already lost a little. What's a little more? Please, do the right thing. Protect your ears. Those small, squishy earplugs they sell at most drugstores are fine. Use those. You don't need to get too crazy with the earplugs that cost over 100 bucks. You know what I'm talking about. Those ones they take the molds of and then they put the filters in. Nothing against the the people who sell those. They're great. However, you will lose them. I've lost two pairs. Go get yourself a bottle of the cheap, squishy earplugs and keep some stashed in your coat or pants pocket in a small bag or something to keep them clean. Second, get to know an ear, nose, and throat specialist. If you ever sense anything wrong with your ears, do not ignore the signs. Book an appointment ASAP. Consider getting your hearing tested. Look. Don't be afraid to find out your golden ears are not perfect because you know what? They're not. You're going to find out that you are flawed in some way, and that's okay. Knowing the details about the main piece of gear you depend on every day is super helpful. Treat those ears with respect, my friends, because you only have one pair. You can't go buy another pair. Wear earplugs in loud places, and please, Please, don't give a shit if anyone thinks you don't look cool. That's that's aimed at my young listeners, really. Because here's the deal. The benefit of getting older is that you just don't care if you look cool. So, 
Long story short, just please take care of your ears on a daily basis. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. That's it. Let's get to it. Frank Filippetti here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt. How you doing? I'm doing great today. I'm 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 so glad that we could make the time to talk. We have a lot to talk about, so I'm going to jump right in. I'm curious about how elements of your upbringing and maybe your parents' influence if there's elements of that that have impacted your career in a way that you could recognize or articulate? Well, my folks were always very supportive of whatever it is I wanted to do. I do remember being very young and my brother and I would be sitting in the living room with my dad and he liked to play guitar. He only could play chords a little bit, but he liked uh, playing the guitar and he used to pick out songs like Everly Brothers songs and things like that, and we'd sing along. And gradually, I became aware of the fact that I was very good, without any training, of picking out harmony parts, of being able to, like I said, without knowing chord structure or anything like that, I didn't know how to play an instrument. But just intuitively, I was able to come up with the harmony parts, the Everly Brothers stuff. And that led to an interest in knowing more about music. And I started in grammar school. We used to have a music program that many schools, unfortunately, don't have any anymore, but everybody was required, actually, to take an instrument. And I started with the clarinet, but didn't like it and fell into the drums, which I loved. So I guess my dad probably influenced my direction. Once I got into the drums and started seriously getting deeper into music, listening to things outside the standard rock and roll fair, I, I'd go off. My dad wasn't a, a big listener or my, my mother was she wasn't interested in music, really. But there was no one in the family that was like inspired by jazz or classical music or what have you. But I started listening to jazz and classical music, and I just started to get deeper and deeper into that and uh, realized by about the time I was 13 or 14 that music was definitely going to be a big part of my life. Up until that point, I always felt I wanted to be in physics, a nuclear physicist. That was my first love, was physics. In fact, I went to college as a physics major, but about halfway through, I realized that the physics that I was envisioning, atomic physics and particle accelerators and things like that, weren't things I'd really be able to get into until post-grad work. And... I didn't want to spend the next eight years in college. I wanted to get out by that point in time. I really seriously wanted to get out and play music. So by then I had a band and we were doing pretty well and I was writing songs for the band. And so I eventually made a recording. I had a Tanberg two track and 
via Sound on Sound, made a recording of my band, and we took it to New York during a break and got a record deal. Hmm. And that was the easiest it would ever be. I was going <laughs> to say, it sounds so simple. It all went downhill from there. <laughs> so for the next nine years, after I, gra- well, after I graduated from college, I went directly to, to the city to work on this stuff. And I got a publishing deal, and which was great because it was support money. Mm. But for nine years, I really struggled to make anything happen. And I think it was on my 30th birthday or that week and that same week of my 30th birthday, my girlfriend threw me out of the apartment. My publishing company, Screen Gems, Cold Gems, decided not to pick up my, I I guess it was my third year option or something like that. And uh, my record company, which at that point was Lifesong Records, had lost its distribution deal with Epic. And it looked to me like I'm here in Manhattan with, well, not here, but I was there in Manhattan with nothing, no opportunities, nothing really going on and no way to make a living. And I said, you know, whenever I bring my demo tapes around, my song demo tapes, people always remarked on how good they sounded. And I said, maybe I, maybe I could engineer, at least I'd still be in music and I'd have something to make a living from. And I went to a friend of mine who ran a studio called Right Track Recording. There was a demo studio at that point on 24th Street in Manhattan. And we used to do our Screen Gems, Cold Gems demos there for the publisher. Mm-hmm. So I got to know him over the course of time, and I went to see him, and I says, you know, you and I have always had a good conversation about sound, and I think I'd be really good as an engineer, but I'm 30 years old, and I don't have the time for being an assistant for two years. Would you consider taking me on, giving me some training, and then letting me go? And he said, yeah, I'll give it a shot. So that was it. Within six months, I was chief engineer at the studio. Wow. About seven or eight months later, maybe even six months later, within that first year, I guess, he found a property on 48th Street and rented that. And we started building the first right track room together on 48th Street, which became Studio A with an MCI console and We had a fixed 56 input console at that time. I think that was 1981, which was pretty good versus most studios. But the main the main factor in our room was that I had always wanted a big control room, as Simon did. Not, you know, the standard 70s and 80s control rooms that were basically big enough for the desk and that's it. Mm -hmm. I wanted something where the sound could really open up. So we designed what I think was the first octagonal room in the city. So it wasn't a long and then short, shallow depth. It was octagonal. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very good size. And because of that, one of the earliest gigs we got there, Peter Asher was producing the film score to the Pirates of Penzance. And he was looking for a big room in the city because it was a Broadway score. It was a Broadway show, which was going to be transferred to film. So that meant the cast was Linda Ronstadt and, oh, what's her name? The uh, actress, the English actress. Anyway, we had a large 
cast. Rex Smith and Kevin Klein, and it was a big cast and, a, or, and an orchestra. You know, not a major orchestra, but I think it was about 18-piece orchestra. So they needed a big room, and we were, we were pretty much it, except for Power Station at the time. And they were always booked, so they couldn't provide them with the, the time they needed, so they booked our studio. And that was for the first real big project that came in. And Peter said, I'm going to bring my own engineer, but I'd like your chief engineer to be involved with this too, because he knows your room. So I automatically got assigned to that and started working with Peter. And it turns out the engineer he brought along was Nico Bolas, <laughs> who um, was at the time Val Garay's assistant. So Nico came, and that's the first time I met him, and we've been friends ever since. In fact, we recently added Nico to our Metal Alliance group, which is a group of engineers who are dedicated to furthering the enhancement of, of sound and the listening experience. So I worked with Nico and Peter, and after about three weeks, he said to Nico, he says, Frank's doing fine. I'll send you back. And I finished a project with him. And from then on, he got me a gig on the next Foreigner album, also recommended me to Carly Simon. So from there on, that really was my major break, was being asked to do this with Peter Asher. A couple funny coincidences is Nico's been on the show. Val Garay, his wife just emailed me, and he's coming on the show. Huh. So whole separate topic, but... Excellent. No, well, Val is an amazing engineer producer, and and Nico, in his own right, has established himself as one of the greats. So, yeah. when the we had lost, we lost Phil Ramone. The original Metal Alliance was Phil Ramone, myself, Al Schmidt, George Massenberg, Chuck Ainley, and uh, Elliot Shiner, and um, along with Ed Cherney, and. Since forming that in 2005, we've lost Phil and Ed, sadly, but Nico was always on the tip of our tongue, kind of, so to speak. So about seven or eight months ago, we asked Nico to join us, which he accepted. And I'm so very pleased because it's almost like we grew up together in the sense that he's the first engineer, really, that I had met outside of my own circle through Peter. And, you know, I've, I've always kept track of how well he's been doing and how the great things that he's done. And, you know, whenever we'd have a AES or something, I'd certainly seek him out. But it's great that he's now part of the group. So we, we talk every two weeks on uh, Zoom each other with the whole group. And it's great to stay in touch, especially during this pandemic season. What did you think as far as, you know, you, you started late compared oh, to, yeah. to many people. And I've I've had maybe one or two other guests on the show that have started late. And the common thing that we've discussed is when you start late, you have an adult perspective that is more mature. And as a result, your decision-making process is more decisive and it's more confident. What would you say about what, what are the advantages of starting late in, in the world of audio? Well, the advantage is are there, but to be perfectly honest with you, I wish I'd have started 10 years earlier. I mean, when I sit 
and talk with Elliot and when I talk with Al Schmidt and those fellas and Al's been recording, you know, he talks about working with uh, Nat King Cole in 1958 and, and Frank Sinatra in 62. And then, you know, and Elliot was working with Steely Dan back in, you know, 75. And I was still a singer-songwriter. And I feel like I missed out on that whole era between the late 50s into the 70s that where music changed dramatically. And it would have been nice to have grown and learned with that. But the other side of the coin is I think the fact that within a year I was working with Peter Asher and Foreigner and bands like that may have to do with the fact that as a singer-songwriter, I used to go in and do my songwriter demos and the engineer that I would be working with, you know, I'd ask to, I need a little more of the voice or a little more. And they look at me like, who the hell are you? You know, I'm the engineer. You're just a songwriter. And I realized how that felt. And I understood the fact that that song was my creation. I wrote it. I had the idea for it. And you are not paying attention to what I'm looking for. Well, when I became an engineer, I started working with these intensely creative people. I was very careful about, I realized that what I was in was a service business, that I was there not because I'm the greatest engineer in the world. They may have asked for me, but I was certainly expendable in the sense that if I got too big a head or too carried away, they could go to a half a dozen, actually a hundred other people that would love to work with them. But I also understood that emotional thing that these songs are to people who write them and who perform them and what a connection they have. And that I would ignore their their scope and their ideas and their insights into what they're doing at my own peril. So for me, I think there was that understanding, partially because of the maturity, as you just suggested. But I, I did feel I always tried to give them my best. Now, that doesn't mean that we didn't have arguments at times, that we didn't have you know differences of opinion. But at the end of the day, it was their record, not mine. Their name was on the record. I remember a, during one of these arguments, Frank Sullivan from Survivor, we got into an argument about, I don't know, some silly thing or a guitar part or what have you. And he said to me, he says, Frank, let me tell you something. Someday you'll look back on this. And he said, if this record doesn't make anything. If this, if this record dies, my career dies. If this record dies, your career goes on. No one will even remember this record, and no one will remember that it was not a big record. You'll just do your next record, which will be a big record, and you're back. It's fine. But that's not the case for me. That was a very, very telling moment when he said that, and I suddenly realized, well, he's absolutely right. I mean, my career does not depend on one or two successes or one or two failures. My career, obviously, when you're younger and you're just starting out a big success, obviously, but 
over the course of time, I've had enough success and some failures as well. But the overall reputation that I have is of a caring and hardworking engineer who's, and producer who's looking, who's trying to get the best out of the artist. And so that's, that's helped me immensely. But like I said, I put out five or six albums a year, maybe, sometimes more, sometimes less. These artists put out an album every two, three years. And that album means a lot more to them. Yeah. And, and you always have to be conscious of that. You were surviving in your previous career. How does that compare to your audio career in the early days? So it wasn't even a contest. I mean, my survival in the songwriting days was really survival. I mean, my big deal back during that period was once a week, I would treat myself to a dinner at Tad's Steakhouse for $1.99. Uh, that was my big present to myself. You know, I, I was living in New York. My songwriter's salary was something like 250 a week, but that's before taxes. And then you have to have an apartment, you have to buy food, you, and it's New York City. So, I'd have to say for about six months while I was learning my craft as an engineer, I was living that same existence. Mm -hmm. But with the appearance of someone like Peter Asher almost immediately in, in my career, who then, that name is magic to, you know, I mean, Peter Asher is about as big as it gets in terms of being a producer. Uh, as well as manager and so forth, he was Peter Asher. He's the guy that ran Apple Records for the Beatles, as well as his sister was Jane, who was, I mean, he had such a storied kind of life and so forth that he was larger than life. And so suddenly I'm working with this man who I would have killed to get a song to five years earlier. And he likes me, and he takes me to England with him to finish the, the Pirates, and then recommends me for Foreigner, and then gets me a, a job uh, working with him on James Taylor. I mean, it was like a fairy tale. So the second half of my life, which is the engineering, that transition happened so fast and so quickly, and I never once looked back and wanted to write a song or at the time that was my life i was going to write songs that's all i was going to do never looked back stop playing drums never looked back and it's been a, an incredibly fulfilling life and also was a switch that turned on and said this was your calling uh -huh. this was what you were supposed to do you took a little bit of a detour to get there but Yes. Sounds like your financial life changed so you could eat at the steakhouse more often. Uh, yes, I, it, it certainly <laughs> did. Yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. 
So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Did you have any kind of go through any kind of identity crisis in making that transition? Like, well, I'm a songwriter. Oh, yeah. I'm a drummer. You know, it's funny, this this talk about the arc of your career and so forth. I was listening to a podcast maybe a few weeks ago with one of my favorite engineers, another phenomenal talent, Alan Meyerson. Alan is one of the greatest mixers for film and television and so forth. He's done all the stuff with Hans Zimmer and Disney and so forth. He's just an incredible engineer and producer. And he was talking about something that happened between he and I, which is what reminds me of this, is that he was going through a period of intense insecurity about his abilities Mm -hmm. as an engineer. This was back... I guess maybe mid mid to late 80s. And he was wondering if this was really something for him, if he could do it. And he had talked to me a couple of times about it. And I said, Alan, you're crazy. You're you're fantastic. You just need to get on a roll and find the, the thing that really moves you. But I suggested that he hang out with me for a week while I was mixing some stuff at Electric Lady. And he did. And I think I helped him through some insecurities about what he was doing and and maybe also just looking at me and I was reasonably successful at that time and probably saying to himself, well, what he's doing isn't that hard. I can do that. (laughs) So, so, you know, whatever, whatever it was, it gave him a, a little bit of a spark to keep going. And he then went out to LA and, he didn't immediately happen, but he fell in with, with Hans Zimmer and Hans immediately recognized what he had there and is now probably the premier, along with Sean Murphy and one or two other folks, film mixers. So it shows those of your listeners who have confidence issues and have doubts that those doubts can go down two paths. Path one is you let those doubts keep you from 
doing anything that provides a real serious commitment. And at the end of the day, 20, 30, 40 years later, you're saying, damn, I wish I'd have stuck with that. The other side is that you somehow, either through help or with your own volition, say, uh, I'm not going to let this defeat me. I know I want to do this. This is something I have to do. And next thing you know, suddenly you're you're successful. I would have to say that anyone listening out there, that if you are talented, if you have the calling and you're talented and you have that ambition and desire to to do something, to change something, to make a mark in something, eventually, if you will stick with it, you will get there. I've seen it happen so many times, people just on the verge of giving up and then, but they stick with it that one more time and suddenly that's the thing that that changes everything. You have to go through a lot of shit during that period. Mm -hmm. And there will be many nights of questioning yourself. But if you have talent, I'm firmly convinced that sooner or later, it will win out. As long as you're not a total asshole. That's, <laughs> obviously, that's another side. That's another coin, whole but thing. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. I think that's such fantastic advice. I'm 51. I've been doing this now, headed towards 30 years. I'm not famous. Yet I continue to do it with people that are unknown and I still enjoy it. I get immense pleasure out of it and people keep coming back. If I spend my whole life doing that and I don't become a household name like you or Al or Nico, that's okay because I'm still getting a lot of pleasure from helping others with the audio skills that I have. So hearing you say that really resonates with me. Well, and you're you're a perfect example of someone that I, I mean, literally within a weeks of making that transition, and you, it, there's no way I can describe to you how much I thought songwriting was my life. It was everything to me. I have cassette tapes in the other room, 150, 200, filled with song ideas, stuff that I worked on, just putting things together, writing this, writing that, and because that was going to be my legacy, songs. And from within a week or two of, of doing this, it triggered something in me emotionally that even writing a great song didn't trigger. There was something new that, that entered. And when you find that, like you found that, when you find that, it's almost like this is what I was put here for. This was my purpose. And whether or not you change the world, only a few people can do that. And most of the time they do it in a negative way anyway. So changing the world is more about bringing up some great kids, teaching them the right values to pass on to the next generation, helping your friends when they need help, 
providing support to students and young folks that are trying to get ahead in the business and giving them that information so that they can do their own bit at changing the world. That's what it is. I mean, to me, it's great to have a lofty goal and I'm always heading towards that goal. I would like to be a Jeff Emmerich. I would like for people to say, Frank provides that emotional context that Jeff used to provide. I mean, that's what I would like to do. I don't know if I'll ever get there, but it's my aspiration. The thing is, whether I get there or not, I love what I'm doing. I will never look back and say, God, I wished I'd have tried this or I'd have tried that. When you're sitting in the studio with George Michael, or you're sitting in the studio with Carly Simon, or you're sitting in the studio with Elton John or Phil Ramone or any of the, and you, you say to yourself, really? I'm sitting next to these people. They're working with me. It's like uh, I, I couldn't imagine a better life. That's, that's great to hear. And I'm curious, as, as you look at your career objectively, how do you think you, you've done? How do you, in, in your assessment, do you think you've been a success for you in your mind? Yeah. It's kind of like I look at what I've done and say, you know, about 70% of the time, I haven't embarrassed myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing, uh, you know, because I look at I look at a ball player and if 30 percent of the time they do great, they're considered a great hitter. You know, they get three hits out of 10. OK, 70 percent of the time I haven't embarrassed myself about 30 percent of the time I've really done what I think is very good work and. Unfortunately, sometimes the best work that you do mm -hmm. is not the ones that are recognized. Some when I play songs at, you know, at seminars and things like that, they're not always the ones that people have heard. I mean, many times there's stuff you do on a, a great record that no one knows about. George Massenberg, whenever I've done things with him, he plays some tracks by a, a woman named, oh gosh senior moment anyway he plays these tracks that he's recorded with her and they are stunning mm. i mean it's like you suddenly say you're in a different place for the three or four minutes that it's playing but no one's ever heard it it wasn't a bit you know it wasn't a big record but it's magnificent work and many times some of our best work is not stuff that people always hear you know i have things that that i'm so proud of like 200 motels with the la symphony orchestra at disney hall it was just a one night only event and because it was too expensive to video and we didn't know if it was even going to be worth taping we decided to do the the audio recording but we never got a video so people in today's world tend to want to see a video with things like that so it came out at a time when the video was important but there are things there's great work that you do so i think when i look at what i've done i'd say well i've gone to 70 and 30 so that's 100 percent. but within that that 100 percent, i'd also have to say that there's about 10% or so that I, I think I really messed up on, whether it's 
I didn't get it or didn't understand what the artist was looking for mm. or just was going through a bad time emotionally. Who knows what, what the reasons for at the time. But I also know that about 50% of that whole lot, I keep thinking, geez, I'd love to go back to that. I could do better. Not that I did badly, but every day that we do this, and I'm sure every day you do this, you learn something. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a, it's a massive kind of eureka moment. Other times it's just a very little thing, but you, you put that away in the, the storehouse and it then informs everything you do from that day forward. And sometimes I look back on some of these things and, damn, I wish I had tried that miking thing that I came upon a year or two later, or I wished I'd have used that vocal chain. You know, I mean, there are just those kinds of things that you look back and say, oh, uh, you know, would I love a chance to get back and remix it or, or do something like that. And during those, what I consider the years that I'm least proud of, which is my first conversion from analog to digital, there was a lot of experimentation that didn't really work. And I wished I could go back during those that period and change that, but I can't. It's, you know, it's like anything else. You you grow up a little and your perspective changes. I also know that sometimes I've I've actually been asked to go back to do something and in trying to duplicate it, realize. God, that's better than I thought it was. And it's really difficult for me to get there. <laughs> so, you know, you just don't know. It's, 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 you just don't know. So overall, I just have to look at it and say, yeah, this has been great. This has been a great ride. You um, are talking to me from Connecticut. Is that right? Yes. And you're in a building that is your studio. And I assume it's somewhat close proximity to your house. Yes. We found a property here in Waterford, Connecticut, and there's an outbuilding, which the history is, it was built in uh, 1815 as the first small Baptist church in this area. In 1830, they later built a bigger one about two or three lots down the road and just left this. But it it's not a big church, it's a small church, but it's got the great 20-foot ceiling, and it's all wood all the way around, and it just sounds lovely, and uh, it's such a great place to work in every day. And we're only a quarter mile from the ocean, so uh, that doesn't suck. So do you prefer to mix in your environment there? Yes. Mainly because I have, first of all, I have everything I want here, and secondly, I've got a 9-1 system here, and I have five JBL M2s on the bottom. Then I have the JBL 7s on the top, and I'm in the process of putting in two more 7 Series JBLs because I'm, I'm going to be working on some uh, Sony 360 mixes, which involve having a bottom channel as well as a height channel. So... But uh, no, this is my my favorite. I want to talk about your friends in the Meta Alliance. I'm curious the impact that your peers in that group and beyond have had on you for your career, for 
everything that you've decided to do and, and how you've shaped your career, what impact or portion of that came as a result of your relationship with a lot of these fellows? Well, I think, I think the first thing that Meta Alliance taught me was a sense of humility that I don't think I had before. Mm. You know, I, I was self-taught. I didn't have the opportunity of studying under Al Schmidt or studying under George Massenburg or, or under Bob Clearmountain or any of these amazing engineers. I had to learn everything on my own because I was, I learned on a demo studio and I only had a few months. Like I say, within six months, I was chief engineer there. It wasn't like there was anybody to learn from. So everything I learned, I had to pick it up myself. Consequently, I felt like, in a sense, I, you have this feeling when you, when you learn it on your own and pick it up on your own, you almost have this feeling like, I invented all this. <laughs> you know? I mean, Look what I discovered. Like, because, because I did. I did it, it didn't come from somebody else. I invented it. And so all these things that I were doing, then we'd start to sit down and talk about stuff. And, you know, and you hear Al Schmidt talk about something, and he was doing what I was doing 30 years earlier. And I'm kind of like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, really? And then you start hearing George Massenburg. He, oh, not only did he do that, he invented the parametric equalizer, for Christ's sake. You, so suddenly you're saying, do I even belong in this group? You know, it's kind of that kind of thing. So that was the first thing was this amazing sense of humility. And also this, the other side being this amazing camaraderie that I had with these people, they, we weren't competitors. I mean, Elliot Shiner, I, I, first of all, I wouldn't, I couldn't compete with him. How could I compete with Elliot Shiner? You know, the guy who did Asia and Babylon Sisters and all this stuff. I mean, you don't compete with that. How do you compete with Al, you know, and Toto and all this? There's no way. And so I realized, but they accepted me. It's kind of like that, what is it, uh, Sally Field, who said, you know, this is an honor because you like me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing like, geez, you know, but I'm realizing I'm not the engineer I thought I was because all these guys know just as much, if not more. But at the same time, they've accepted me into their group. So obviously, I have something of value uh, to contribute. So it really was a, a learning experience and something that I desperately look forward to every two weeks when we have our Metal Alliance conference calls on the weekend. Especially, like I said, during the pandemic when we've all been kind of isolated from each other. You know, we used to get together at least a couple of times a year, either in LA or New York or what have you. We do the Metal Alliance Academy in which we'd rent out a studio a total studio like Power Station or Capital, Capital Record Studio for two days and have 30 or 40 students come in and show them. Each one of us would have a room and we do uh, uh, digital recording, analog recording, digital mixing, analog mix, you know, and people could circulate around the rooms. And, uh, and in addition to that, whenever we had an opportunity, we'd get together for Ed Cherney's birthday or we'd get, you know, it was just, 
And this past year, it's been it's we haven't been able to do that. So we're very much looking forward to the time we can do a med academy again, because that's one of our favorite things to do. Because for me, in the end, I hope someday to to uh, to teach, because at this point, I don't know that I'm going to break any new ground in the popular music business. But I do think I can break ground in inspiring some students Mm -hmm. into breaking their own ground by trading on the experience that I have. So that I would love to do someday. But Metal Metal Alliance is basically, that's part of our mission is the education and, uh, you know, Music Education Technology Alliance. So that's what we're about and why I'm so very proud of, of not only the group, but everybody in it. You, as we mentioned before, you're in Connecticut, and while you're not too far from New York, do you ever feel a sense of isolation being in Connecticut? Some people might feel insecure about the fact that they're in a a city other than a major metropolitan recording place like Nashville or Los Angeles or New York. What would you say to those folks who are concerned about being in, I don't know, Albuquerque, New Mexico? I would say that if we were holding this conversation 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I'd say, yeah, you got to get where the action is. But now, even when I was in New York, I'd say about 80% of my business in the last 15 years has been internet oriented, come over the internet. Whereas I used to be in the studio recording five, six, seven days a week, that has vastly changed in the last dozen years or so. Now, when I do a Broadway show, even if I do a, sh- you know, I used to do three shows a year sometimes, but those are only three week projects because you have to record the entire show in one day. That's uh, there's no way around it because of all the regulations from SAG, AFTRA, and Musicians Union. It's just too expensive to go into a second day, so you do the whole show soup to nuts in one day, then you spend two or three weeks of editing and mixing. But the concept of going into the studio with corn or with someone like that and recording day after day for five months, six months, seven months, that for me is no longer in the cards. It's not something that I've done probably since corn. And that, first of all, the budgets now aren't, they're a tenth of what they used to be. And for all those reasons, the home studio, the home environment, the environment away from the major metropolitan centers has really changed the way that things are done. Billie Eilish and Imogene Heap, and those albums were recorded in bedrooms by the artists themselves. This is the way things are being done now. I could have never moved to Waterford, Connecticut back in the day. I mean, I lived commuting distance to Manhattan, where I drove in every morning for 20 years. But as soon as this transition started happening, I've always wanted to live by the water. And I found a place a quarter of a mile from the beach. And I say now, and it has everything I want, except it's not two hours to Boston. It's two hours to Manhattan. 
I don't know if it's affected. The only thing that's affected really my career in the last few years has been the pandemic. But I would have done this regardless. And so far, I'm still working. Things are still going great. And I don't see any downside to, especially to a, a young person who wants to do something. Back in the day, we had to go to New York. We had to go to Nashville. We had to go wherever. But in today's world, I don't think that's important. If I need to record something with a band, which is too big for in here, four miles down the road is Power Station New England. Oh, yeah. Which is an incredible studio. In fact, the first time I walked into it, I didn't even realize it till I moved here that it was right next door. And I went over and looked at it and I walked in and I thought I was in Midtown Manhattan. <laughs> it's like a, a, a direct replica. But for me, I don't think any person now has to make that adjustment. I think they don't have to go into Manhattan. They don't have to go to L.A. In fact, in many instances, if you make your name in a local area, I think you're better off, especially with the local, you know, the bands that are coming out now are phenomenal. These kids are playing at eight, nine years old, as well as we did in our 20s. You know, I mean, it's that, you know, there's so much that they pick up now with the internet and so forth. So local bands, it's a great career just doing local bands and stuff and recording them. You have all the highs of what I used to do. The only difference now is that, you you know, you may not get the million sales like with a Foreigner album, but I haven't seen that since the last corn record. And that was, what, 2007, something like that. Mm. So, you know, million sales and, and double, triple platinum albums, that's, for me, the kind of music that gets that kind of notoriety, not stuff that I'm particularly interested in anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I prefer to do a Dave Brubeck album any day of the week. Uh, not Dave Brubeck. <laughs> I mean, I do like Dave Brubeck, yeah. but, but Dave Grusin. I was just listening to a record we'd done together on the uh, 25th anniversary of West Side Story. And he's just uh, an amazing arranger and, and, and keyboard player. So I love doing that kind of thing. Final question. You've had, you've had a nice career, and I would love to get your advice to others on What's the best way to handle your finances as an audio professional? Oh, don't ask me. <laughs> oh, you have talked to the wrong guy there. <laughs> oh, no. I put all my money into the to Right Track Studio. I lost my pension. I lost everything. Started from scratch. Thank God my career was enough to sustain me. But yeah, I, I am not. <laughs> when it comes to finances, what I will say is, get somebody to do it. More often than not, I used to have financial advisors. They all took me to the cleaners. Mm. So I would say if you or someone you love and loves you can handle your finances, it's a very, the question you ask is extremely important. You have just turned to the wrong guy for <laughs> advice about it. But the gravity and the, the importance of the question is, is sound. You really do need to take care of your finances. Like I said, I had a 
big pension, which I was I had put all that money for years into. And then when when Right Track, we wanted to build this new room, A509, which went uh, $6 million over budget. I threw all my money into that. And, you know, and then when when the studio business folded in 2008, I lost it all. But, you know, uh, year by year, I've, I've managed to to work well enough to keep it all going. But it's a very important thing. I wish I had a good answer. But the only answer I can give is have someone do it and have it be someone you can trust implicitly. But that's very hard because even Billy Joel, his what was it? His wife's brother was handling his finances and he took him to the cleaner. So I don't know. But especially in today's era where you don't get the $2,500 a day and the $3,500 a day mixing fees and stuff that we used to get, and and you're you're living closer to your nut every month. You got to be careful. It's very important to know uh, when to invest in your gear, when not to. One of the things that helped me was I was always investing in gear, and that got me through a lot of, uh, especially microphones. You know, vintage microphones are still prime real estate, so to speak. So I I say if you if this is your career. Whatever you have left over and can invest, invest in things that people will always need that will never go away, like a great analog microphone. Digital gear is tougher to invest in because that changes so drastically year in, year out. Yeah. You buy a like a UAD preamp and uh, Apollo preamp, and I bought one, and I bought it when it came out with a FireWire interface. Well, that won't connect to anything anymore. It's that kind of thing that you have to worry about. So, But with the analog gear, and especially either vintage or even non-vintage microphones, some of these great new microphones that they're, that Audio-Technica and Sanken and Austrian Audio and even the Neumanns and the AKG, they're all coming out with these great new microphones that have new technologies, and they may be the vintage microphones of the next 20 or 30 years. So anything like that, if you have an opportunity, invest in it. Invest in a good set of speakers. Yeah, because that is so critical because your mix is only as good as what you're hearing. If the mix is distorted because of the imbalance of your speakers, then that's what people are going to hear. They're not going to hear the great mix you hear in your room. They're going to hear something different. So uh, good speakers, good DACs, and obviously your recording gear. But uh, yeah, that's what I would invest in. But And I would invest... I invest in that much more so. I'm not a big buyer of other things, but I do like being uh, surrounded with my gear. <laughs> yeah, as most of us do. Uh, well, that's, I mean, hearing your story, I mean, that's great advice in itself to know that you had troubles and you recovered, but it's it's definitely... Um, I like to bring it up because people just don't really talk about it all that much. No, and and that's why I also suggest that as a, as a story with Alan and so many others, there have been dark periods in all our lives where we're wondering, is this right? Did we do the right thing or something? But now that I look back on it over 40 plus years, I say, 
I can't imagine being more satisfied with the work I've done than doing this, than, than choosing this as my career. Wow. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I've long wanted to talk to you. And uh, I think it was uh, Steve Jenowick who initiated yep. our, our connection. And I got to thank Steve. He's, he just talk about a future Meta Alliance member. Oh in yeah. My opinion, absolutely. Objectively speaking, I think Steve nope. is, is your next guy. Yep. Yep. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, where can people find out more about you, Frank? Do you maintain a website? I have a website. I haven't updated it in two or three years, you know, with all, all that's going on and the move and all that. I haven't really paid attention. But yes, there's a website. You can contact me there at frankfilippetti at, no, it's frankfilippetti.com. <laughs> that's what it is. Well, it's been a real pleasure, as I've said, and, I, and I, you've been very generous with your time, and I, and I certainly appreciate it. So thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for asking me, Matt. It's been a pleasure. I've done a few of these, and I like the questions you ask. They're not the standard group. I like the the focus on the on the career and the the emotional aspects of things. Very good. I'm honored to to hear that from you. So great. Well, thank you, Frank. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Frank Filippetti here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review. You can either give us a, a five-star rating or you can leave a nice message, whatever you choose. I really appreciate it, and it helps the show out. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew, which includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.